Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Support for this broadcast is provided by David Ivester, author and guide. For this episode, forensic handwriting examiner and multi-published author Sheila Lowe steps into the interrogation room to clear a few things up about her own writing and craft. She's been a recognized expert and nonfiction author in her field for more than four decades, and her handwriting analyzer software has been in use around the world since the 1990s. Sheila also instructs forensic analysis courses at UC Riverside and UC Santa Barbara, regularly lectures on the topic in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, and she's the current sitting president of the nonprofit American Handwriting Analysis Foundation. Sheila also writes the award-winning Forensic Handwriting Mystery Fiction series, which features the fictional character Claudia Rose. Sheila describes the series as medium-boiled, warns that they are definitely not cozies, and Sheila personally thinks of her fictional novels as psychological suspense. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Sheila. Always great to talk to another investigator. Thanks, Gavin. Same here. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That'll get you. That'll get you uh, asked back. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. I, I'm actually reading through your book uh, the, entitled "What She Saw" right now, and uh, that's in a second fiction series, uh, which I, I think is called "The Beyond the Veil Mysteries." Right? Yes. Now, this is an immediately intriguing story that that fascinated me from page one. Uh, for readers who are new to you and, and your fiction, what do you want them to know about what she saw in this series in general? Oh, that's a, a topic that fascinated me from childhood, and that is amnesia. This is a young woman who wakes up on a train and realizes that she has no idea who she is, where she's gone, you know, where she's come from and where she's going. And she gets off the train and things happen. So you have to read the book to find out what she saw <laughs> that put her into amnesia. <laughs> now, how, how did, uh, I guess, what was your in, initial fascination with? How did you first learn about amnesia? And I, I would imagine you had to do at least uh, you know, some pretty extensive research on, on the topic to see what was fictional and what wasn't. I did. And of course, there are different kinds of amnesia. And different reasons for going into that state from you know, head injury or trauma, all kinds of different things. And uh, so, yeah, I read a lot of really fascinating and scary stuff. And I would imagine with something that's kind of so mysterious and, and really unknown, uh, you know, in real life that you can take a, a lot more fictional liberty with that topic than you could with um, I don't know, forensic blood spatter analysis or something that's mm. fairly well-defined and pretty narrow, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, it, there's such a wide range of experience. Uh, I was on YouTube looking for different things, and I mm -hmm. found the story of this man, uh, Clive, I can't think of his last name, but an Englishman who had an illness, and he woke up with complete amnesia to i mean he's he's the worst case in the world his memory lasts 90 seconds wow and he's constantly writing things down to try and capture the moment and yet he always recognizes his wife but wow. nothing else yeah that is maybe the most romantic thing i've heard all week as as, as, as horrible as that must be for her still <laughs> yeah he doesn't remember his children but he wow. always remembers his wife and is happy to see her. 
Well, he probably never wanted those kids anyway. You know? Oh, uh, so, that's so evil. <laughs> a, a, a friend of mine um, got a, a, a head injury, a massive concussion when he was snowboarding. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, the condition, I think it's called perseverating, if I'm pronouncing that right. Perseverating. Um, yes. Thank you. Yes. Uh-huh. That's why you're the expert. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so he would, uh, from his memory, he woke up in the back seat of his buddy's car, just flying down the mountain to get to a medical center. And he's got this series of uh, like three by five flashcards in his hands. And he's like, asks his buddies, hey, where are we? What's going on? And they're like, look at the cards. Mm. And he, he, he looks at the cards and it's like, the first one says, you fell down on the mountain. The next card you have a concussion and a severe head injury. The next one, you're going to ask us these same questions again in 90 seconds. Mm. And uh, so they had gotten tired of, of putting up with, mm-hmm. with his repeated questions, gave him the flashcards. And uh, yeah, so I guess he woke up with a, at least a, a small part of a, a real experience, very much like you fictionalized. And that's uh, that would be pretty terrifying. Yeah. I, I uh, tried to picture myself in that position. And then also with the added feeling that, that my character has, that you cannot go to the authorities You're yeah, on I'm, your own. I'm really, really intrigued to find out why. When I, when I read through that, that she ran away from the cop, I was like, oh man, that was like her one source of obvious help. Yeah. But, you know, something internally is telling her to run the other way. And that's, that would be absolutely terrifying to know you're totally alone and in a quasi familiar place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had a, a one or two people sent reviews that were negative about that saying, Oh, well, you know, that's ridiculous. Of course she's going to immediately go to a cop, but you know, there's a no, wide, wide range of experience. Yeah, there is. There is. If, if that were true, uh, no one would hate us so much. <laughs> <laughs> so. From a from a craft perspective, um, you, you've uh, I understand you, you describe your books as, as psychological suspense, mm-hmm. and I I wonder what what elements or what components of the story you deliberately incorporate so that that is separate or distinct from you know a psychological thriller and keeps it in the in that suspense category. Uh, well, I think the difference is that a thriller is like nonstop action. And maybe, you know, in the beginning, something happened, something exploded, and then you spend the rest of the book trying to figure out who did it and why. But psychological suspense, it's, it's um, a more gradual unfolding of what happened and, and putting the characters into, you know, a state of real tension. And, but it's, it's kind of slower the way it develops. And on the the psychological books in in particular, it seems to me a lot of them um, are standalones, and I, I'm really excited to actually hear hear from your thoughts about this, because so many writers in this genre write standalones, and you're writing two different series in in psychological suspense and mysteries, and um, for most of these stories, right, they're ordinary people cast into extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how you crafted this these to actually be a series and be effective for readers. Oh, something I never thought of. And, and I'm going to be giving a talk about <laughs> <laughs> writing a series. So I have to think about it. Um, yeah, I, I think because my both of my series are character-driven, 
-hmm. They're all about exactly what you said, taking ordinary people and putting them into extraordinary circumstances and seeing how they react to it. And people who might, in ordinary circumstances, never do the things that they do, although mm -hmm. in some of, in the book that you're reading, they do. But um, yeah, it's I don't I don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's it's funny that you know so much of writing I think is is so intrinsic and internal that a lot of times um, I feel like something is needed. I feel like you know, this works in the story, but I can't always explain it. It's, it's so weird. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, if there's a sixth sense, there must be a seventh writing. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. what's that word granular. It's kind of or yes. organic. Yeah. It just yeah. happens naturally. Uh, but I, I also think one of the things that's, that seems to separate, uh, your series out too, is that you have, a the, the main character who's not necessarily the, the, uh, the object of, of all of the, the trauma, you know, in this case, you know, the, the, the amnesia. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, that definitely adds a, a really unique element to your stories that I, I don't think exist in much else of the genre. I think that's really impressive. Oh, thank you. I, I'm happy now, to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I also wanted to get uh, your point of view on point of view mm -hmm. uh, and to know whether, you know, you deliberately choose a point of view that you're writing in, or do the characters kind of uh, suss that out for you as, as you're getting introduced to them in, in the early phases of your writing? Um, well, I write in close third person. So it's almost like first person, except it's not. You're mm -hmm. watching them, but you don't know anything more than they know. And I, I guess it's what I like to read the most. I've switched. I've thought about writing in first person, but it just doesn't work for me. So I write what I like to read. Yeah, and I think uh, for me, I, I write in uh, varying degrees of, of third. And to me, first person, it feels like a hard-boiled mystery automatically. I, I think Raymond Chandler, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and when um, when... I read first person, you get such like a close and intimate view of the character, but you also lose so much going else, else going on in the world around. Right. And you don't know what they don't know. You can't see what they can't see. You don't understand what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you end up having to have a, a much more, uh, I guess, deep and multifaceted character to, to me to, to, to make that work. Or, you know, the readers just have to have to, uh, get sucked into the, the drama of the story. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, along with that, in my, in my first series, the forensic handwriting mysteries, my point of view character is Claudia Rose, who does the same kind of work that I do. And for the first five books, everything was from her point of view. Um, but uh, in the fifth book, I realized that her, uh, her lover, her partner, who is a, a homicide detective in the LAPD mm -hmm. his his point of view needed to come to the fore and also uh, a girl that has a troubled teen who is pretty much throughout the series so I had three point of view characters which was really interesting mm -hmm. yeah now you brought up uh, Claudia Rose and, and that uh, that series I, I wanted to, to bring that up specifically because I, I'm curious to know you have such a um, 
such a detailed and specialized expertise in, in forensic handwriting analysis. Mm -hmm. And so does, you know, your, your character, Claudia Rose. And I, I wondered, as I was reading about that series, how you kept enough information in there to make the book, <laughs> uh, the series believable and relevant without making it write a, a PH or a prison PhD right. in fraud and, in fraud and forgery. Ah, that's a, yeah, that's a very tricky line. Um, and people write to me all the time and say, oh, I learned a lot about handwriting from reading the book, but I didn't feel I didn't feel like you were preaching at me. But of course, I have written a whole bunch of books that teach yes. handwriting analysis so they can go to that. But yeah, um, it's funny because the handwriting analysis is my platform. So I have to bring in a certain amount of it. But I, I read a couple mm -hmm. of reviews, well, maybe one, saying, you know, oh, it was just too much handwriting. <laughs> And others will say, I wanted more handwriting analysis. Yes, yes. So you have to balance it. Yeah. Now, most of the advice writers get, especially aspiring authors, um, when they're first trying to put a book out that's that's going to be you know commercially viable, a lot of the advice revolves around writing what you mm -hmm. know. And with Claudia Rose being so closely tied to your professional experience, I, I wondered if if that was kind of what bore her out into the world that write what you know philosophy, or um, was there some other motivation that you wanted to wanted to create this character in that series? Um, no, that's I think how it started. I, I always wanted to write a mystery since I was a young kid, and writing what I knew seemed to be the way to start. I didn't know it was going to be a series, but um, then switching over to this new series is so completely different that, you know, I'm not writing what I know anymore. But one thing about this, the, the Claudia series, when, when I started writing from her boyfriend's point of view, Joel, he's a cop. And so, of course, I had to do a whole lot of new research on that and take some classes and, and interview detectives. So that was quite different. Well, I guess from, a, uh, from an advice standpoint for writers in, in a similar position. How did you go about establishing that relationship with a local investigator or detective so that you you could get real information from them that maybe they weren't willing to share with the public? Um, well, in some cases, we had at, at our Mystery Writers of America chapter here in LA, we had um, different investigators come and speak to us. And so, of course, they would give us their card and say, give us a call. Um, I also took a course with Derek Pacifico that was two or three days. And, um, and, and also like when, when I had part of a story set in New York, I just called the precinct where uh, it, the story was taking place and asked if there was someone I could ask questions. And they were always pretty cooperative. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, uh, going about finding a, a good working relationship like that is critical for someone who doesn't have the experience. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think too, that uh, as, as you mentioned, these various uh, factors that played into, into your research and all of those things I think are going to have very different outcomes, you know, calling up the, the precinct of New York is going to get you, you know, some fairly superficial, maybe public information officer mm -hmm. level information, um, you know, and no, I getting, spoke to a detective. Is, you know, just, oh, sh sure, but just simply, well, yes, what I mean is that he's probably not going to say anything to a stranger over the phone well, he doesn't know that he wouldn't, you know, put sure. in the headlines. Um, and 
you know, but having, you know, that personal contact through the Mystery Writers of America and the, the cops you met through that, I think are going to be a lot more willing to give you detailed info, um, not, you know, violate operational security or anything, but give you more detailed info that they wouldn't want in a headliner that they wouldn't say to a member of the press. Because um, there, I would imagine there's a little bit more trust in a personal Especially relationship. Especially when you take them out to lunch. <laughs> now, actually, one of <laughs> yes, them gave absolutely. me an, uh, their old operating manual from the LAPD. And, oh, that's and, fantastic. And also um, a whole thing. Uh, it's on the murder book. All the, I mean, there's a whole big thing yes. that they gave me with all the information. Yep. It's funny. I used to work for a sergeant who went to. Uh, he did uh, did some time. <laughs> it sounds like he was <laughs> yeah. a prisoner, but he he did some time out out in the L.A. area, and uh, he swears that the LAPD is responsible for his smoking <laughs> habit, because at the time at the time that he worked in L.A., the uh, the thought and and some of the guidance from the official manuals he claimed were that supervisors should smoke. What? So that when you went up, so that when you went up to a scene, and your guys were asking you questions that you didn't know the answers to and had to think about, that that smoking that cigarette allowed you a few moments of solitude to think about what you wanted to do, draw the cigarette out of your mouth, give them the response, and then throw it down dramatically to emphasize that you were right about what you were doing, and um, it could all be total BS, but he swore by it, and I, I I'm. I, I can't, uh, I, I have no evidence to contradict it. <laughs> well, these days you wouldn't want to throw down your e-cigarette. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, going to be a, you know, real substantial plastic and a littering problem and chemical Expensive. contamination. Not just, a, yeah, yeah. Now, you talked about knowing that you wanted to write uh -huh. at an early age. And I wonder if you had a writing mentor early in your life or, or how you, how you realized that you wanted to do what you're doing now? Gee, it's so long ago. I don't remember um, what started it, but I just, I was writing poetry and then, and then um, I'm from England. And when I came over here just before the Beatles and the Beatles, like I, I like to say they wow. followed me over because they were here a few months after. Me. Yes. And I was writing <laughs> stories about being married to Ringo, you know, but at some at some point, right around then, I started writing a mystery, and I didn't mm -hmm. I don't remember having any mentors. I really don't. But most, like for the next forty years, I was writing technical stuff about handwriting. But I always, mm -hmm. in the back of my head, wanted to write that mystery. And so finally, like nineteen ninety seven, I think I started putting down my ideas for Poison Pen, which was the first book in the in the series. And then I got mentored. I went. I took a class with Elizabeth George and uh, some others, and started reading a whole lot of books because all of a sudden I realized that having having a best selling handwriting analysis book was not going to serve me in <laughs> fiction. I had to, it's all literally a whole different story. Yes, uh, I I wonder if you remember the the first time you realized you'd written something that someone outside your family wanted to well, read? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, it was those stories about the Beatles. I used to take them to junior high school and my friends would check them out. And I mean, they'd take them home and, and check them out like a library book. And, and I still have those, <laughs> those books in folders with the list of names. 
Yeah. That's fantastic. Are are you still in are you yes, still in touch with anyone? Some of them. We just had our fifty year anniversary, um, you know, high school reunion. And uh I saw some of them. And they remember those books. And some of them have come to my book signings lately because they still live in the same area. Now, from the the outside of your professional life, I, I would kind of expect that most of your forensic work ends up involving fraud, forgery, contract disputes, those types of, you know, what, you know, detectives might call paper crime. Uh, what, what's the typical workload of your day? And what's, what's a typical day in the life of a handwriting well, that examiner? It's true these days, but for the first probably 30 years of my career, I was working in personality assessment through handwriting, working with companies who are wow. hiring or psychologists. And in some cases, <clears throat> rarely, but sometimes with police departments um, but yeah, now in the forensic side, um, I, I got a call this morning for a contested will. So there's that. Or sometimes there's anonymous notes, threat notes. And then just a lot of really kind of mundane things like somebody forged a deed. I, in most cases, it seems to be family members trying to screw each other. <laughs> you know? Yes. Sadly. <laughs> like... Yeah, like almost all victim crimes, it's someone you know yeah. and allegedly love. Yes, yes um, sadly, that is true. Now, I, I'm immediately fascinated with the idea of personality, there being a correlation or connection between personality mm -hmm. and handwriting. Tell me more. Well, um, yeah, that's, that's how I started in 1967, studying handwriting and personality. And yeah, you know, your handwriting, does your handwriting look exactly the same now as it did, say, 20 years ago? Pro uh, it's it's fairly okay. consistent. Um, I think probably just because I've been typing for so much of my life, but um, it's amazingly very strikingly similar mm -hmm. to my dad's, even though I didn't really mm -hmm. grow up with him and didn't really, uh, like, we've never traded letters or anything like that. I've probably seen him sign you know, a check or a school paper, but yeah. you know, that's kind yeah, of, yeah. Well, research shows that family members do tend to have uh, similar traits, but then if your handwriting is alike, that in certain ways you are going to be alike. And it's like, if you get a letter from him and it's a handwritten envelope, you're going to recognize who it's from. Or if you get a letter from grandma, yes. her handwriting is not going to look like your dad's and you'll recognize it. <laughs> so hand, handwriting really, yes. um, is a, is a personal expression, and it tells a lot about people. And uh, I will tell you my own tragic story. Uh, my, um, mm. you know, my kids, of course, what do you do when your mom is a handwriting analyst? You bring home your boyfriend and girlfriend's handwriting and say, what does it say? <laughs> so, <It's laughs> yeah, well, was, yeah, yeah, actually, my daughter, when she was 27, 26 at the time, and she met a new guy who happened to be a federal agent. And um, so he wanted to know what his handwriting said. And I looked at it and I was very dismayed because there were serious red flags for pathological, pathological behavior. And we, we discussed it. And mm -hmm. I asked him if he'd had a head injury because physiological artifacts show up in handwriting. And he said, yes, he'd been hit on the head in the job so hard. He'd been almost blinded and he suffered terrible headaches. So um, oh, we wow. discussed it, uh, the problems and that would come up in the relationship because she was a very difficult person too. And 
um, as usual, she didn't listen. And within a year, he had killed her and himself. So I oh couldn't look God. at his handwriting and say, he's going to kill her. But I could see the, the distinct problems in the handwriting, those red flags. And we discussed them. You know, the, the problem was a potential for explosive behavior. So, so yes. handwriting reveals a lot of really important information. I am Thank so you. sorry for your loss. Uh, well, you know, that leads into something else. That happened in 2000, and it awakened my interest in what happens when we die. And what I've learned is there is no death. There's just life after Earth. And that's what started mm -hmm. this new series that I'm writing. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I, I think as I get, uh, as I get older, um, you know, I'm much more interested by, uh, by all these types of topics. Right. Um, but especially, you know, I, I think, um, all of that cannot really be simplified in a dogma, a religion, a tradition. And I think, um, a lot of it is so complex and, um, so ethereal that we're not capable of understanding it, mm. only experiencing it. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, our, our time here on earth, I think is only a, a part of this whole equation and, uh, and I have to life agree. will go on. That took a very distinct oh, no, Nothing to apologize for. <laughs> yep. Um, in, in your professional work, um, I know that you, you've obviously created this Claudia Rose character based on, on, on your own experiences and own expertise for, an author who's listening to this and, and, and inspired by how much information there is in someone's handwriting and they want to create a forensic. They can't do it. It's all mine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you most like them to see them get right in their novel and the things that they should absolutely uh, avoid getting? Yeah. Right? There, um, there's some well-known, uh, authors who uh, it's, it's two people and they wrote a, a uh, scene in a courtroom and their handwriting examiner was like a gypsy and it really ticked me off and I wrote to them and, you know we the the personality assessment side we get you know how do I want to put this when I go to court if I'm opposing a document examiner who was trained in law enforcement or some other government office, they will mm -hmm. try to have me disqualified because yes. I had different training from them, even though it's really the same training. It just wasn't right. in a lab, but they'll say, yes. you know, Oh, you just, you're just a graphologist, which in other words, they're trying to say, Oh, you're a fortune teller, even though that has nothing to do with graphology. Yes. So to answer your question, no. they need to really understand what a document examiner does and how it's different from what those other people say it is. Well, I, I had an article published in a, in a uh, legal a bar magazine, bar, you know, not drinking, bar attorney. <laughs> and, uh, <Yes>. and it's, <laughs> but, <laughs> they the old, do. They do but it's though. this article that was addressing, you know, is one kind of a document examiner better than another? <laughs> and the answer is it's, it's all mm -hmm. in the training. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, and I, I would expect, you know, and that's, that's one of the things, right, that people, I, I, I think the public kind of misunderstands to some degree, or they just get frustrated with, um, with our legal system, right, is that, you know, you go into court and you swear an oath as the guy on the stand to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which is an impossible thing to do because you are asked a very narrow mm-hmm. set of questions by each side and often cut off when yeah. you start saying something they don't want to hear. Um, and... You know, so it's very common for, you know, a a legal proceeding to have opposing experts who are equally credentialed, equally qualified and of different opinions on either something that's subjective or based Mm -hmm. on a difference in training and experience. And the jury is left to decide between these two experts, which one was more credible. And that's a tough position. Yeah, well, that's what in that case, it's mainly who the jury or the judge who is you know, depending on the trier of fact, <clears throat> which one they like best. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's in, yes. in my series, yeah. there is a character who is a document examiner that's based on a couple of, or let's say two or three people that I have come across in my work where they've actually gotten on the stand and lied about their credentials and then lied about me. Wow. Yeah. And, and oh, then wow. I'm at the mercy of the attorney that I'm representing. Uh, and and if they don't fix yes. that, then I'm left looking, you know, kind of holding the mm-hmm. bag. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things, right? Like um, I've not had that exact same experience in an official proceeding, but certainly been um, maligned uh, among some of my mm-hmm. colleagues at, at some point in time. And it's definitely one of those things, right? When it happens, you're like in such disbelief that these things this isn't supposed to happen. You know, this is, you know, a, a group of sworn officers where this is a legal proceeding yeah. where people have to tell the truth and they're bound by their, their oath. And it seems like it should be the stuff of fiction. And when it happens in real life, it is so just flabbergasting that this yeah, is actually my reality and Especially right some of the things that I've seen judges do. It's just, oh, mm-hmm. it's, I have no words. Yes. No, no, it's, it's, it really is, um, you know, there's, there's a, a reason we have an, an, an appeals process and, uh, you know, like with, you know, working here in Arizona, um, the, uh, the ninth, uh, um, uh, circuit court out of San Francisco, um, oversees all, um, ultimately all of the, the legal action here in Arizona. And that's the most overturned circuit court in the country, um, and we refer to it locally as the Ninth Circus because uh, they get they uh, get overturned so much by the Supreme Court. Um, and you know, so for a group of folks who are all supposed to be equally qualified as judges to make so many poor decisions that their colleagues override so frequently, like how do you get to yeah, keep your job? The it's legal amazing. system is pretty amazing. So, and one an attorney once told me, "We don't call it the justice system; it's the legal system." <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yes. That's, that's yep. terrible and appropriate. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to get back to what she saw for just a moment. Cause I had a, what is, I guess my own personal curiosity. Um, I, I grew up, I mentioned my, my, my dad earlier, but, um, for all intents and purposes, my mom was, was kind of a single mom for quite a bit of our, our upbringing. And so I have a, a real 
passion and a real soft spot for a lot of women's issues. And within the first, I would say, few dozen pages of, of what she saw, there were a number of different women's issues that, that you touch on as this character is experiencing this, you know, world around her. And I, I wondered if, if that was something uh, that you'd done deliberately, or if those were just circumstances where you had, you know, put her in this scenario and just seen how you would react to it if, or how she should react as your character. Yeah. Um, hmm. No, I just sort of, I, I guess I I put I in in my head. I saw her getting off the train, and and those things just seemed to happen, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, and of course, uh, as a single mother myself, many years ago, uh, I I had plenty of my own experiences to call on. Yeah, I I, I felt for her very deeply and immediately, and you did a really fantastic mm. job crafting her as a, a relatable and intriguing character. Well, you made my day. Thank you. <laughs> I love her. I'm not going to say, well, yeah, we know the name. Yes. Um, <sighs> now, beyond writing, uh, what are you passionate about? What gets you out of bed in the morning and, and moving with a purpose? <laughs> I sit here at my computer all day. Uh, it's all, almost always something to do with handwriting. Although I have I have retaken up knitting after fifty years because my my son and his wife are having my one and only grandchild next month. So, oh, congratulations! Uh, that is such I, fantastic news. Thank you. I'm going to Germany to to see them and to meet my granddaughter. Oh, that's wonderful. So, but yeah, I really, I'm, I'm a real dud, you know, I, I don't do much of anything. <laughs> well, the, the next time that you come on the show, you, you can, you can talk about all the fantastic things that Germany has to offer. And I, I, I can make some distinct recommendations based on, you know, where you might be going. So, oh, well, I'll be in Frankfurt. I'm going to a military oh, ball with my son. He's, oh. he's sponsoring it. He, my son, that son uh, was a rock star over there <clears throat> and, uh, yeah. So, and my other son's a tattoo artist. So I am a cool mom. Yes, absolutely. The hippest cat on the block. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm also going home to England and, um, and I'm going to Gibraltar for family history wow. research. And I'm looking for yeah. a story there for, for Jessica. <laughs> and uh, although my next book is going to be a Claudia Rose book uh, mm -hmm. set in Egypt. Wow. So maybe I'll have to another go there. Yeah, another fascinating place. Yes. Uh, in my experience, most writers are also the most avid readers. And mm. I wonder if you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator. Um, I do. Or, you know, crime-solving character you read or follow. My very favorite is John Sanford's books. <clears throat> I like mm -hmm. both Virgil Flowers yes. and uh, Lucas Davenport. I just, I think... He get, makes his characters so real and so human. I really love them. I asked this last question of all the authors who come on the show. But God forbid it should come to pass, Sheila. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, <laughs> what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want on the case? Would you pick Davenport or Flowers, or would you go for someone more revenge-oriented? Uh, revenge? Mm, I don't think so. Um, uh, the one that comes to mind is uh, Kovac, 
who is mm-hmm. Tammy Hogue's investigator. I really like him. And he's he and Nikki Liska are just dogged. They would find out who did it. So I think they're the uh, that's the first time they've gotten a nod on the show. So that officially puts them on the board ah. in the uh, the chosen investigators tally here. Cool. Uh, where can readers connect with you and your works and maybe get an update on your new releases? Um, well, the easiest one is just my name, SheilaLow.com, but that's about handwriting analysis. My dedicated uh, website for my books <clears throat> is ClaudiaRoseSeries.com. I appreciate you making time to to come on the show, Sheila. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm exceptionally grateful for for your presence and your time. Thank you, ma'am. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been expert forensic handwriting analyst and acclaimed author, Sheila Lowe. Support for this broadcast is provided by David Ivester, author and guide. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. (music) 